0: on in our Philippians series about putting your confidence in the Spirit and and not your own flesh. And that is because we're at the place in this series, in Philippians, where we want to make sure we're putting all the stuff Paul has talked about into practice. In other words, we're at this place where what we've been learning about God should be shaping who we are and what we do for God. And as you can see today, today's a Communion Sunday, so this talk is uh, important Because it really does, as we look at these cosmic categories of sowing to the flesh and kind of putting our confidence in the spirit, everything will culminate And this table this morning. This is the greatest evidence of Jesus giving us the power and the authority we need to actually live into these teachings that we have today from the Apostle Paul. And so we've been looking at this subject of sanctification that's what began a few weeks ago in Paul's writings in Philippians chapter 3. And sanctification is simply a fancy word in the Christian faith that describes how we grow in our love for following Jesus in all areas of our lives. So doing so enables us to, to experience that unassailable joy in life Paul's talked about for, for two whole chapters, really, at this point. So today, we're, we're talking about this concept of reaping and sowing. And my hope is that we'll leave today with a clear understanding of how... This is this is the principle of sowing and reaping. Let me just be very clear with it. What we invest into our lives today makes us who we are tomorrow. That's what this means. What has happened in your life in yesteryear, the good, the bad, the challenges, the successes, the failures, the mistakes, all of that stuff has in large part made you who you are today. And what is important about this is to know that in some of those yesteryear things that went on in our lives, they might have happened in ways where we were unaware of them. Maybe some of who we are today was shaped in us in ways we didn't want to be shaped, right? There's, there's like maybe a, a, it was benevolent, but nonetheless it, it made us into something we didn't want to be, almost like an, an, an omission in our lives in the prior. And then there are times where we might commissively be doing things in our lives that that begin to shape who we are. And so in this pa- this paradigm here, what Paul really wants us to see is that God has a very particular purpose for us. He has something that he does want us to be, and he wants us to grow into the image of his son, Jesus. And that requires intentionality on our part, but also resting in the power and the presence of his spirit to bring about these things. And so because of communion, I won't have a lengthy introduction this morning. I want to jump right in and begin talking about how we can put this practice into place in our own lives. And this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you today. It will piggyback on what we studied Two weeks ago in the book of Philippians, where Paul introduced this concept of not putting your confidence in your flesh, but really putting your confidence in the Holy Spirit. And so we'll, we'll carry this into Galatians today, but the theme is still the same. And it is this. If you want to be more like Jesus in your life, and hear me here, I'm saying if because I recognize some of us might be at different places in our faith here. But if you are in Jesus... There should not be an if on the front of this. It should be like, because you want to be like Jesus in your life, you must stop sowing to the flesh. If you're questioning Jesus, or you're at a place where you're not sure who he even is at this point, there's an if for you. But for those of us in Jesus, there is a when. There's a guaranteed uh, reaction here. To be in Jesus means we should want to live like him. And to live like him, and to grow like him, and to look like him, means we have to stop sowing seeds to our flesh, and we have to start sowing to the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we'll run with the theme we introduced two weeks ago. According to Paul, every single one of us is sort of like a a spiritual farmer tending to an important harvest called your life. This is a, a theme that spans both testaments of the Bible. The idea of agrarian farming, working the field, producing fruit, the time it takes to see that happen. Man, every single parallel that you see in a farm matters in our lives. Sometimes you cast seeds and nothing happens. Sometimes you cast seeds and it grows immediately. Sometimes you cast seeds and it grows immediately and it dies. There's there's really every, every variable that can be presented in our life for how we grow in Christ can be seen in a farm. And that's why this is an analogy used very, uh, very specifically and frequently throughout the Bible. And so what's most powerful about Paul's writings here in Philippians and Galatians is that this is a guy who has really wrestled with this truth in his own life. And he tells us that every person is either sowing seeds to grow the flesh, which moves us away from Jesus, or they're sowing seeds that help us to move towards Jesus. They're sowing seeds to the Spirit. There really isn't a middle ground here. Uh, Now, granted, we might get gray in some areas of our lives as we're processing this, but the general idea Paul is saying here is we are either migrating towards Jesus or trying to figure out what that looks like, or we're not migrating towards Jesus and we've gotten content sowing to things in our lives that are not necessarily uh, the kinds of rhythms God wants in our life. And so to explain this truth, he uses this tried and true agricultural principle. Now, I've joked before in the past about myself and us. Uh, I'm not a farmer. I know a great many of you and I don't know any of you that farm uh, for a living. But the beauty of this passage is that you don't actually have to be a professional farmer to be able to understand what Paul is conveying to us about reaping and sowing. In fact, most of us in this room probably know more about farming than we might even believe or even give ourselves credit for. So, for example, years ago, uh, and I I bring this up for a reason, years ago, I shared a story with you uh, about how my mom had given us a lemon tree. She gave it to my son. Uh, This is five years ago now that that we've had the tree. I shared the story a few years ago with you. And the lemon tree when she gave it to us was like about this big in a pot. And so we planted that tree. And it did nothing for years. It looked like a weed for a while as I was cutting the grass. And the guys that helped cut my grass, I'd have to tell them, like, don't cut that. It's not a weed. It's a tree, a lemon tree. But it's only like this big. And it looked like nothing and did nothing. And it was essentially killing all of the grass around the tree. And it became a real pain in the yard. And there were times when I wanted to rip it out. But my wife would not permit me me to. So uh, that's just the way it works in our house. And so I, I kept saying, like, we need to tear the tree down. And we didn't. So the tree just grew. And it grew and it grew. And then it got very big. And it required a ton of maintenance. We were trimming it constantly, and it smelled really good. It smelled like lemons when we cut the leaves, but it never produced lemons. For three years, nothing happened, okay? Then in the fourth year, this is two years ago, it produced lemons, and they looked amazing, but they had the consistency of rocks, and you could have, like, broken windows with them. I would cut them, and it was, like, dry pulp with no lemon juice in it. And so the tree is now more aggravating because it requires more, a ton of work for me, but it is not giving me anything back. And so the tree I was over, I trimmed it up last year and I just thought the tree going to be what the tree is going to be. And then this year, the same cycle repeated itself. I saw little yellow things in the tree that I thought were rocks. And I was thinking like, OK, here we go. The tree is producing junk again. And I began to pick them, the first har- uh, harvest of them, and I cut them. And it was somewhat of a shock. The lemons were actually very edible and they were big and they were really juicy. And we started putting them in our iced tea, and we started cooking with them. And I started noticing we had, like, a lot of lemons now. They were on the counter, and they were in the refrigerator. And I had more lemons that I knew what to do with. And so we started giving lemons away privately to people. Uh, and then we still had more lemons than we could give away. And you probably remember this if you've been with us here for the past couple of months. About six or eight weeks ago, we brought up here, like, several filled bags of lemons and we just put them on the tables out there and they were gone in in one uh, Sunday morning. And so I want to say a few things about this. The tree actually produced a, a healthy crop of lemons. So many that we actually couldn't We couldn't give them away quick enough. So that's just something you can brag about. You can tell your friends that you have a Yankee pastor who's a lemon farmer right now. Like, I'm I'm knocking this out in my backyard, and it's really great. And I'm thinking, like, maybe tomatoes or something next year to tap into my Italian heritage. But it was completely gratifying. Like, after five years of pain, uh, we just saw fruit, and it was beautiful. Now, I suspect the farming truth of this story makes sense to you. Let me explain why I think it does. You might be wondering what the point of this is. Here's what the point is. What if that story had a different ending? What if I I got to year five and I said, and then what happened was that tree started making peaches? You would say, uh, because you have a basic understanding of the agrarian world and reaping and sowing, you would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Logically, if you plant lemons, a tree should produce lemons. A lemon tree doesn't make peaches and a peach tree doesn't make lemons. If that were the case, you'd say that seems somewhat impossible. There must have been a fault in the planting or a problem with the harvesting. Something is out of sorts here. And this is why I say we all likely know more about farming than we might expect. Everyone knows, whether you live in the agrarian world or you live in the industrialized city, that you reap what you sow. When you plant lemons, logic dictates that you should get lemons, right? When you plant peaches, you should get peaches. And so the point Paul is making here in our faith is, is parallel. Remember, the farm is an analogy for life. So we've got to figure out what the consistency is here between these two things. And it is simply this. What you invest into your life, what you make a priority, what you make or allow to shape and mold your heart, what you sow into, this is what he's talking about, is what is going to make you who you are. And so what we need to know is you are who you are today. I am who I am today, good and bad. And we all have this in our lives because of what has been intentionally or in in uh, in, an omissive way sowed into our lives yesterday. We're not here by accident. We're here for a reason. The goal of this teaching is when we have this conversation with ourselves five years down the road, we have a greater grasp on what we sowed into ourselves today so that we, we're shaping into who Jesus wants us to be tomorrow. Who you are today is a direct result of what you sowed into your life yesterday. And think about this. Here are some examples. Um, you know, I do a, a sizable amount of counseling. And those of you who are in community groups know this. You do counseling, maybe not in the official way, but you do it in very unofficial, but no less important ways. And most of where our challenges in life come into play are through relationships. So the person who looks at their life today and realizes all their relationships that matter most, their friends, their family, their spouses, whatever it is, if it's in disarray, there's a good chance that the years prior have been sown into unhealthy rhythms. Or another common challenge we see today is this issue of debt. Uh, Debt is a major problem today, especially when we begin to look at school loans and some of the things we carry in our younger years. If you're not aggressive about that or maybe you're reckless in spending habits, a lot of people today, you know, you don't just wake up in debt. It's not like you just get a letter and it's like, hey, you owe us $100,000. You have to do things. You have to sow things to get there. And there's lots of legitimate debt in life. Please hear me. I'm not... Not going like fundamental on you in this area. I'm just saying a person who is buried in debt, choked out by it, has clearly spent their years prior sowing into reckless spending habits. or maybe they've not even been reckless. They've just not been thought out. Or the person who realizes they're getting older. This is very common, but still has no real direction and purpose in their life they've likely spent some years prior squandering the precious time God has given them to make something of themselves. God's given you a purpose and a reason to to become something, a calling and an identity. And if you don't press into that or take advantage of that, you 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 might just stagnate through life, coast through life. And then at the end of your days, wonder why you didn't do the things you thought you were supposed to do. In each case, there's a direct cause and effect taking place. What a person reaps is the direct result of what they've sown earlier in their life. When you have bad relationships, you get bad relationships. When you sow reckless uh, financial living into your life, you get debt. When you sow apathy into your life, you get frustration and stagnation. This is what Paul's trying to show us here. We have to be careful about not sowing to the flesh. All three of those things, by the way, that I gave you, those three examples, are all things God has great purpose in our lives for. There are spirit-led rhythms, if you will, in all of those things. And that is what Jesus wants us to be pressing into. He wants those categories of our lives and the ones I haven't mentioned today to be defined by his Holy Spirit. We really have to be mindful of what we plan in our lives today. Because if we don't, we might wake up regretting what we've come tomorrow become tomorrow. And this is what the Bible calls worldliness. The Bible actually has a name for this. Sowing unhealthy seeds like this is called worldly living. And we talked about worldly living years ago in the Gospel of John. I want to reintroduce this idea to you today. Worldly living is one of those religious terms. And don't hear me here. There are lots of buzzwords in the Christian faith that are very substantive in Scripture. But they have been very convoluted and confused many times amongst the body of Christ and certainly by the world. Um, you know, no pun intended as we're speaking about it right now. Worldly living is something that that really does have a, a ton of baggage with it. And in many ways, it was a very abused term under the era of moralism that the church has pretty much come out of. I've shared with you in the past that I believe, you know, when I became a pastor, just almost 20 years ago now, um, moralism was like the battle cry that we were all being told to address. We were basically seeing people who were, you know, un- they were understanding what Jesus said we should do, but they had no spiritual vitality. The motivations for why we were to live righteous and holy lives was disconnected. And so the, the epoch, if you will, that my generation of pastors have, have dealt with is moralism. Today, we're dealing with per- permissibility. I've said this multitudes of times. Today, we're dealing with, the, with a world that basically says, well, God would never— That's God would never. And the truth is that God would actually, in many cases, he does care for justice and righteousness. He does care for us to reflect the image of his son, Jesus. And so this world, worldly living, I I bring this up because if you've come from a church background, you might have a very negative connotation of what I'm about to say. And I want to be clear about what I am and am not saying worldly living carries a ton of baggage with it. But Jesus himself talks about it a lot. And Paul is talking about it here. So rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, it's better that we redeem the term. There are times in our faith where we shouldn't throw the term out. We should redeem the term. This is one of them. The world is one of those statements that has a very precise biblical definition, often accompanied and confused with a ton of, of bi-religious and cultural opinion. So in the past and even today, it was very common for people with a church background, those in Jesus, those raised in the church, we were told things like, I was even told this. When I became a Christian at 20, almost 23, I was told the world was everything that took, out, took place outside of the church. Like there was the Christian in here and the world out there. And basically, what happened out there was really bad, and we were supposed to stay away from it. And we were supposed to be like bastions of holiness in this room. And people that grew up under that, that kind of teaching, and it's sort of true in some senses, but also not true in a lot of senses. There's some deep faults in that. The teaching was commonly developed, this. This is what the practical application was. Uh, it becomes an us in here versus a them out there mentality. And that way of believing kind of made sense for a season. And, and, you know, God in his goodness can use anything in our lives. I just think there are times maybe where we have to grow beyond what he's using because there's a, there's a deficiency in it and he's filling the gap. Ideally, we want to move to maturity. And so for some of us, we might have believed that. and Maybe we still believe it today. But eventually that is challenged or was challenged when some of those same people we met in here acted just like the people out there. And you realize, like, actually, I am one of the people in here. And sometimes I act like the world out there, right? That's the challenge here. When we talk about selfishness and the difficulties of life and and our struggles with sin and temptation, the truth is that we all deal with that. And so we can't just relegate this to something outside of our lives. The concept of worldliness is much more than just a set of, of negative moral actions. It is that, but it's much deeper than that. And it doesn't only take place in places where we're not. This is why we fall away and struggle and we have issues in our faith. Eventually we realized worldliness, it was more an internal heart attitude. It, was, it certainly expressed in external deeds, but it's an internal heart attitude characterized by a heart that is in rebellion against God. And that can be found anywhere. That can be found in the heart of the Christian and in the heart of the person who is very far from God. If you want a synonym for worldliness, a couple of, defini- a couple of words would be it's a heart that is in rebellion against God. And if you need a colloquial definition of how scripture defines worldliness, it is this. It's when a person knowingly or unknowingly commits their heart to a system of belief and conduct that is opposed to the ways of God. That is worldliness. So wherever there is a place where we are living in ways contrary to the spirit of Jesus, we are beginning to embrace the rhythm of worldliness. And so listen to how John Stott, a famous pastor and theologian, describes worldly living or sowing to the flesh. Uh, he's one of about six guys I quote regularly in here and for good reason. This is a pretty profound Statement. He says to uh, to sow to the flesh is to pander to it, uh, to cuddle and stroke it instead of crucifying it. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we expose our eyes to things they shouldn't see, Every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. That's a key word because righteousness and holiness are where we're going after this section in the spirit because that's exactly where Paul goes. We're going to have some good dialogue about that. But for today, we'll lay the foundation for where we're heading. And here's what this this foundation says. What Stott is saying here is the root issue in sowing to the flesh is that on one hand, a person says they want to be more like Jesus. But then on the other, they sow things into their life that makes them anything but like Jesus. And so there's an obvious disconnect in all of this. Like when we are in our our sane spiritual minds, this makes perfect sense. The problem is that when we are not in our sane spiritual minds, when we are overcome by temptation or enslaved to the ways of the world, this doesn't make sense anymore. And we often have the inability to blur, the, the line is too blurry to understand where the flesh is and where the spirit is. This is where community comes into play. That's not a thing we're going to talk about today, but it is also something we're going to talk about here in the very near future. There are times, just frankly, the precursor to this is where these things here are true, but we can no longer see or sense them as true. And that is where we have to have people around us who can carry that burden for us in the seasons when we're out of sorts with God. We have to be able to be uh, engaged by people like that, and we have to care enough about people to engage them like that. So when you're putting your confidence in your own flesh, which is what Paul says in Philippians, you can't see this disconnect. And that's why we need to clear gospel truth to cling on to before we find ourselves in that situation. And this leads me to the second truth I'd like to share with you today. I said a few weeks ago that all truth and the, all the lies that we deal with in the Christian faith and life, sowing to the flesh, whatever that aspect of sowing is, we need to know truth to be able to overcome it. And that's where we're heading today. So if you want to be more like Jesus in your life, you must sow to the Spirit. You can kind of see today's talk as it's a a negative rebuke and a positive affirmation. The negative rebuke is we cannot sow to the flesh. That's what Paul's saying here. But we can't end on that because that's a really lame way to go home, right? We don't want to go home saying like, we can not sow to the flesh. Now what do I do on Monday? What we learn from Paul and what Jesus tells us regularly is we have to now start sowing to the Spirit. And that's what I want to talk about. And so the way you know... You'll know you're sowing to the Spirit is when you begin to walk or live by the Spirit. This is a very common um, teaching in Scripture. Let me explain. In the Bible, living by the Spirit has a very particular meaning. I have lots of sermons online that address what we call pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. And this is not a talk where we're going to get like, you know, knee deep into that today. But there's lots of teaching online that addresses the role and the purpose and the identity of who the Holy Spirit is. He's essential to our faith. And it's important that we know what, what these types of teachings mean. When we start talking about the Spirit... Jesus' Holy Spirit, it's important to know his role in our lives. We're commanded to live by the Spirit because the true source and strength of the Christian faith can't be fabricated or manufactured in us. I say this all the time. You cannot follow Jesus without Jesus. You just can't. You cannot build the kingdom of God without the God. Without God. You cannot uh, you know, sow to the Spirit without the power of the Spirit. In one sense, there's a command he gives us to do this, but in the other sense, this is a command we cannot do without the presence of God. So think about it like this. The main goal in our sanctification is to become more like Jesus. It is to bring every area of our lives under Jesus' lordship. It's to embrace the lifelong journey of a disciple. And, and a disciple in our definition here is we, it's a person that loves Jesus' truth in the scripture. They are a faithful partner in a local church. And they are living for the mission of Jesus. So you're in the word. You are in community. And you are in the world. That's what a disciple is. Those three arenas of life are super important for us to grasp and grow in. So logically and theologically, you cannot become more like Jesus without relying on the presence of his Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is in you. You and I are not Jesus. When we come to Jesus, he redeems us. And he begins to pipe into us the faculties and the abilities to do this stuff. And so when we talk about this, it is important to know that living by the Spirit is just another way of saying living like Jesus. The Spirit is not an abstract entity. It is the Spirit of God. He has an identified purpose in our lives. And so think about it like this. One of the reasons many of us grow up to be like our parents, and I recognize that when I bring parents into the mix, um, we might have good stories, really bad stories, or stories in the middle. So I want you to work with me here on this because it's it's another one of those analogies that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. When we think about our, our parents um, in many ways, especially as we get older if we 're going to be honest, we, we start looking more like them like i 'm seeing this now, my son 's about to turn eleven and i 'm starting to see identity in him i 'm starting to see some of the things that matter to me matter to him, not all things, but some of the things and as i 've gotten older, looking at my relationship with my parents, you start to see you start to see that you start to become like them, a lot of the things you thought maybe had no No seed-sowing relevance in your life in your teens or 20s. They really start to matter when you're in your 30s or, in my case, now 40. Keep in mind, I'm a 40-year-old with a second-place chili spoon. It's totally messed up, all right? That's an identity issue, right? So I was always going to use a sick day today, but I got over it this morning. (laughs) Really hard night. (laughs) So, right, so that's a great example, though. Like, my dad is pretty competitive, and that just stuck with me throughout all the years, right? So... So think about this. When you're around your parents, right, you start to look like them. There, there is like an osmosis that happens where some things you see and want to be like, other things you don't want to be like. And then there are things that you just, they just happen. You might not even be aware of it. You just wake up one day and you realize like, I'm like my parent in this way. And those of us with children, you know, our day is coming to see that, that same thing. Oftentimes we embrace what matters most to them. And the challenge of this is that some of the things that matter most to us are not the greatest things in the world. And that's why we have to make sure we have a discernment distinction between the spirit and the flesh. So the same is true as we pursue Jesus by walking in his spirit. This this is why God is called our father. The same parenting principle applies. The mark of a person that is trying to sow or keep in step with the spirit of God will eventually begin to see the fruit of the spirit in their life. And by the fruit of the spirit, I mean you're going to start looking like Jesus because they are cultivating new affections for God and no longer the world. And when that happens, when you start to sow to the Spirit, you'll start to become more like Jesus. And this makes perfect sense, because if the Holy Spirit keeps and empowers us to live the Christian life, then we should naturally be okay with the Holy Spirit directing our steps in life. In other words, when we claim to follow Jesus, we should want to live in a way where we are actually following Jesus. Okay, That's the point of what we're reading in Philippians and in Galatians. And this idea of fruit is a prevalent one in Scripture. So fruit is, uh, in Galatians, I'm not touching on this today but later on in the book of galatians fruit, uh, paul gives us some specific expressions of fruit and in other places too it's you know perseverance joy peace patience these ideas are evidences of who jesus is in us and so by sowing to the spirit some of those things should begin to develop in us more deeply and distinctly the the fruit of the spirit really are vital signs of life in christ and so as we talk about sowing to the spirit I hope you have enough of a foundation this morning to understand that. Simply put, sowing to the Spirit means you're beginning to embrace the things that matter most to God. Whether it is a morality or a spirituality or a relational dynamic, what matters to God through his Son begins to matter through us. And the Holy Spirit is able to execute the bridge between who we want to be in God and, and who God wants us to be in him. There's a bridge there every day. There's who we are in Jesus today and who we are not yet in Jesus. And it is the Holy Spirit That uh, he is the one that ferries us into that that deeper distinction, that deeper walk with Jesus. So, kind of wrapping up today, I want to leave you with this last section of teaching. I'd like to share a practical strategy with you for how you can posture your life to keep in step and so do the Spirit. There are some action steps, I think, that are very important for us to grasp. And I want you to think about these steps from the same angle as a, a combat soldier. I I I like reading, and I read a lot of stuff. And one of the interesting things about this, the the kind of sociology, the way the way folks who fight combat or are engaged in combat, they're trained to do certain things. In other words, they've recognized that for people to flourish in this very, very challenging discipline of life, there are certain things that matter. And training, which you probably heard three weeks ago, uh, is training is a high priority in any type of military entity, especially in the Western militaries. And it's why it's one of the highest priorities we have in 2017 for restoration. I told you guys three weeks ago, if you want to grow in Jesus in any area, particularly when it comes to mission, uh, this is a place where we want to provide training and accountability for you this year. So training, the purpose of this, and hopefully you can connect the bridge back to why I just said that, Training for the combat soldier happens way before combat begins. The frontline soldiers will tell you there are these common threads that they share. They tell you that they're trained to such a degree that when combat happens, they don't actually think anymore. It is like raw instinct. They just are doing what they have practiced a million, million, million times. And as a result, they are able to endure incredibly challenging, life-threatening, and oftentimes life-taking situations. It is a muscle memory, if you will, a mental muscle memory. And it is an amazing phenomenon that allows them to do their job in the most extreme situations. In this case, we're talking about uh, being shot at. Now, the parallel I want to briefly communicate here is this. When it comes to dealing with worldly struggles, sowing to the flesh, the trials and temptations of life, the things that keep you from becoming like Jesus, if you're trying to figure out what to do as that stuff is happening, you're not going to win that battle. That's just the reality of it. Uh, God and his grace can get you through some stuff. And I'm not saying that God God can't help you get over that hill. But what I'm telling you is, if you begin to sense something in your life that you are ill-equipped for, that should happen once for the Christian. We should realize, oh man, I'm out of sorts on this. And we should now want to go back to the training. We should want to go back to the place where we identify what truth is. We flesh it out with the people that are around us. And we learn to live it in our worlds as we leave the learning and fleshing out environments. The truth is that you cannot overcome trial and temptation, or at least very rarely, if you're not aware of it and you don't have the corrective tools in your life to overcome it. So the strategy I want to talk about now is designed to be reactionary, but not reactionary in the sense of ill-equipped reaction. It's that muscle memory idea I'm talking about. When it goes down, whatever it is, you're, you're kind of aware of what's happening. It's an evidence of a life in Christ, a spiritual muscle memory, if you will, that you resort to when you desire to return to whatever Jesus is leading you away from. And so there are just three ideas I want to share with you. Uh, One is defensive and the other two are on the affirmative. Step one is this, is if you want to sow to the spirit, you must make every effort to avoid actions and environments that will easily trip you up. Now, I don't know how else to say this, but to just straight up say this, this is perhaps the most obvious step in this strategy, but it's one that is often overlooked. You know, the bottom line for a great many of us is that some of the issues we deal with in life, they're in our lives because we permit them to be maybe we're in abusive relationships, or maybe we're in challenging times, or maybe we're like bogged down with stress, or maybe we have issues with money, whatever it is, at some point, if we can't get to the place where we say, this is not good for me, and I've got to figure out how to how to work through this not being good for me, I've either got to be able to flourish in the circumstance, or there are absolutely times in life where uh, where you might need to remove yourself from the circumstance. There's obviously a lot of distance between those categories but nonetheless what i'm saying is there are times where we are overcome by things in our lives because we have permitted them to overcome us so the bible speaks about this behavior quite a bit and i'll give you a general kind of statement for what it says but it talks to us about fleeing temptations about being keen enough in your own faith and with people around you to know like that is something that's going to wreck me whatever that something is i'm not going to fill in that blank we've all got our filled in blanks there Whatever that is, though, if you've uh, if you've long had a problem with something, you have to be careful to not expose yourself to it. So, for example, here's a very obvious one. You know, if you have long had a problem with alcohol, right, it should it it makes sense that you would set your life up in such a way that you would you would stay away from it. okay? or if you have had uh, very high is perhaps the number one killer of marriages that I see. Uh, and relationship in general, if you've had really high or idealistic relational expectations about what love is and relationships, you should probably stay away from all those unrealistic like romantic comedies that come out every summer here, right? Where, where there's just a bunch of fooey that really doesn't even ever exist and the guy always gets the girl or the girl always gets the guy and everything's perfect. And you're like, man, how come my life can't be that great in 74 minutes? You no, know? that's, the, that's the beauty of the theater. You leave like, this is awesome. But uh, most of these are false narratives. And in fact, some of the greatest Christian writing today about marriage is trying to get us into the reality of the fact that that's, a lot of that stuff is fable. I'm not saying there aren't true elements to it, but, but it really is a bad problem if we start to see relationships from the 74-minute film and not the way the scripture describes them. And so in this case, uh, it might be better for us to make it a point to be in real relationships, right? With people that, that blunt the edge of your ideal, where you realize we're all faulted and we all make mistakes. Us too, right? Or if being self-absorbed is your thing. Maybe you post a little less on Facebook and Twitter about how awesome you are. You know, I mean, we all know you're awesome. Everybody knows everybody's awesome in life, but there's no need to remind anybody anymore. If, that, if that's a thing like the, the accolade and the praise of that just wrecks you, it causes you to sort of the, spirit, the, the flesh of pride, you've got to be careful about your use of that tool. It's a great tool, but it's a tool that can, that can be a problem. And so avoidance has a place in our lives. And I want you to hear me, though. I know that avoidance can only go so far and has a real limit. You can't avoid yourself out of everything. We have some movements in Christian history that attempted to do this. They they took worldliness to an extreme, and the extreme basically was we ejected out of the world, and that's a problem because you can't reach it, reach the world and disciple the world. Which let's be frank, all of us were a part of at one point. That were if we're in Jesus now, at some point we were not. Somebody had a burden to mix up into that stuff to be Jesus in that stuff. We don't find Jesus without us moving into those. Those realms God can find have people find him without us and does. But the primary way God calls people to find him is through is through us. And so avoidance has a limit. I'm aware of that. It's not possible to stay away from everything that might trip you up in life. So hear me when I say fleeing temptation. uh, It has to be kind of a a waypoint on your roadmap, but it can't be the end. That's not the end destination. There's a comma after this, but it is a necessary one. And it might be one at times that really There might need to be like a a reality check where we have to just say, no, I can't do this anymore. Sometimes we might be wrestling with an issue that requires us to totally remove ourselves from either a a situation uh, or whatever it is. Indefinitely, temporarily, I don't know. That's kind of, that's truly between God and the community you're engaged with as far as the the end game of that. But our temptations and struggles are different. That's the point of making it. They're all different. But the way we deal with them is not. You've got to be extra careful to not sow to the flesh by putting yourself in a situation that fuels the desire to cause you to sin. So avoidance, recognition and avoidance actually can be a really important thing and sometimes needs to be. Step one. Step two, if you want to sow to the spirit, make sure that Bible study and prayer are happening regularly in your life. Remember, avoidance, um, that's sort of an easy, not easy, but it's easier for us to do. Meaning we can say I'm going to stay away from this, but that doesn't necessarily remove the desire if you don't want to be present there. And this is why I say you can't sort of the spirit without God, the father, Jesus, the son of the spirit. Here's where we now begin to take our actions and we marry them to the goodness of God. So after avoidance, which is largely a defensive move, you must get on the offensive. You can't just stay in a defensive posture. You have to make it a priority to let the truths of God's word encourage you and sustain you and flesh out in you in community subject for another Sunday. But the idea is, you know, the truth, you're living the truth out with other people. And now that truth is beginning to shape your life. Those truths have to be made reality in your life. And oftentimes they're not. I mean, let's just be frank. Sometimes we know cognitively what should happen. Sometimes we are, we are good proclaimers of truth statements, but then we don't have the ability or the genuine desire to live into those things. That is a common place for the Christian to be. And it is a place God has dealt with for millennia in his people. So we have to invite and let God work to bridge those gaps where they are, they're disconnected in our lives. Jesus himself tells us his truth sets us free. It doesn't lead us into shame. It doesn't lead us into bondage. It doesn't lead us into dismay. It leads us to freedom. So where we are struggling, the truth frees us. And if we are getting something else at the end of that equation, it means we are likely misunderstanding truth or not applying it properly in our life. Or maybe we're just trying to live it out without the grace of God, you know, at all. Who you are in light of God makes us more like God. That's something really profound to hold on to. Who God says you are... You is is the wrong, obviously. Actually, it and ain't, many other words are very prevalent in my upbringing. But uh, who you is in God ain't, right? Okay, there you go. Who you are in God, who he says you are, is who you are. So if you are not something, if God says you're beloved, you're beloved. It doesn't matter what you think. You're beloved. You just got to start believing that and helping him help, help shape that in you. Whatever that is, wherever you feel like you are not, just know that it's very worth looking at who God says you are so that you can know that that's actually who you are. And it's a matter of letting him awaken that reality in your life. If you want to sow the spirit, then being in the scripture is absolutely necessary. Because you're given a truth to deal with everything in life. I'm not saying every nuanced circumstance. But I'm saying the alpha direction of your life is going to be addressed if you're talking to God. And praying with God. And I say that regularly too. I've said this a ton of years. The holy trinity of Christian growth is Bible study, prayer, and community. If you disconnect those things, you start to get imbalances. But when they are firing on the same cylinders, you get, you get God working in some pretty amazing ways. When they're combined, something amazing happens. And I didn't give you an example just in the prayer angle. I told you we're not going to do a community today, at least in depth. But uh, there's a, an interesting analogy in a book I taught on a few years ago uh, from a guy named Tim Chester. And the book was called You Can Change. And he talked about the connection between Bible study and prayer. And he said that uh, if you want to see how this works in a functional sense... Just look at what a child does, okay? So a child, you'll tell a child truth. You'll say like, you know, don't do this or whatever it is or do do this. And uh, a child can know that to a certain degree and they might be sitting, this was especially true when my kids were much smaller, but I see it now in more dramatic ways as they get older. Um, they 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 will be by you and they will know what they're supposed to do and at times they will get into trouble. And by trouble, I don't even mean they're doing something wrong. I mean, they sense something's not right and their instinctual reaction is what at 678910 what are, what are they doing they're not running away from people right they're not burying their heads in the sand their instinctual reaction is to turn around and look for mom and dad that's what they do so there's there's a there's sort of like a a reasoning ability that God has put into us that is also it also has a spiritual parallel but as we get older we can we can blunt this reality and we start to look to things that are actually unhealthy so a child's immediate response when they are in danger is to look to the one that they know can make it right. That's how they understand that process. And that's the same thing that's going on here. You might know, like, stay away from this. Don't do this. This is hard. You might know that. But at some point, you might, be, you might get overwhelmed by that. And that's when you have to be able to turn your head to the one who can help you overcome. You have to look to your father in heaven. That's the bottom line here. You have to be able to say, there's a bad dynamic right now, and I need, I need you. You need to know God's present with you. But uttering those words... And letting God manifest himself in you in that moment is important. So act like an infant here is what I'm saying. Be okay. Be humble enough to look to God for his presence in those areas. This is how you understand the importance of of knowing and praying, knowing what Jesus says, and then actually living this out. When you find yourself in a situation that you can't avoid, turn to your Father in heaven. Uh, This is another form of worship. In fact, it's an alpha form of worship, according to Romans. It's what we like to call lifestyle worship. This is recognizing that worshiping God happens for 75 minutes here, but it happens for the other 6.90 days of your life, right? There's, there's six and nine-tenths of your life you will live outside of this room. And this stuff we talk about here distinctly matters for those, those times. Applying God's truth to your life through prayer and community is a discipline, not a part-time job, and it would do us well to know that. Avoid, obviously, but get on the offense in God's grace and in his power. The last thing I'll say here, step three, is if you want to serve the spirit, you have to make it a point to not only think about yourself, but to joyfully serve others. This is the third step in our discipleship pathway, connecting, growing, serving, and giving. And serving has always been a stellar hallmark of our church, an incredibly difficult times. So when I say this to you, uh, I'm saying that uh, a great many of you really do have this in your hearts. You, you are servants. That's just the bottom line. And if you look at just what it takes for us to be a church, you know we have like 10 times the work of the average church at this point. We're hoping to change that. We pray regularly for a space and a permanent property, but uh, we don't walk into spaces like everything we're doing now. Keep in mind, teams showed up here at 7 a.m. this morning. For us to have a 75-minute worship service, three and a half hours of labor will go into setting this room up and breaking, breaking it down. And so this rhythm is really prevalent here, and I want to just exhort you to press on to, into it. Serving is such a crucial part of our disciple-making pathway here at Restoration because when a person begins to serve others, it is almost always a sure sign of a love for God, a deeper level of love for God. And this is because the root of all sin, no matter what it looks like on the outside, this is where moralism failed. It didn't take sin seriously enough. It just focused on the aesthetics, the issues, but it didn't get to the root of what causes the sin. And if you want to deal with the weed of sin, you've got to kill the root. The root of all sin is serving and pleasuring self. That's the bottom line of it. It's when we look to gratify self. It's when we look to what Paul's saying, to sow to the flesh at the expense of looking to the, to the spirit and sowing towards the things that are eternal, God, his son. It's always rooted in living for the pleasure of self. While genuine gospel living is rooted in the pleasure of serving for another. That's what the cross shows us. Jesus takes no pleasure in the cross, but he goes to the cross in his servitude for us. His selfless sacrifice, his death, is what enables us to have life. So naturally, a direct way to fight off the selfishness that sin produces in our lives is to live your, your life in such a way that it's defined by sacrificially serving others. And one of the best ways to serve others is to just be engaged in their lives. And what happens is, is you'll likely realize there's a lot going on, uh, and sometimes more than just what's happening in your own life. It's a broadening to the faith horizons. And furthermore, you're going to be deeply encouraged. Um, one of the things I want to talk about a lot this year is what it means to share stories. And by sharing stories, I mean um, it's actually when we all go to the mat this week to try to live this stuff out in your community groups and in our phone calls and our emails and our coffees and our lunches, me to you, you to me, you to each other. The, the celebration of story here really matters being able to share the win, and the, the win and the failure and the success and whatever's in the middle of those categories. Here, what, what matters with something like this is that we have to be able to live this with people throughout the week. And if you live this with people, what happens is you'll find encouragement in their lives, you'll find struggle in their lives. And to a certain degree, the things we think that are torpedoing us, we might find our normative realities for everybody. That doesn't make them any easier. But it does, it does create a communal bond in how we form spiritually form in Jesus to grow. And to overcome these things. And so the bottom line in all of this is, one of the ways you sow to the Spirit and subdue the flesh is to serve other flesh. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. It's to serve and bless your neighbor. It's to, it's to labor at times, maybe when it's not even easy or convenient. There is an incredible joy God can bring to your heart when you begin to live like that. It's a joy that increases your affection for God while simultaneously crucifying the flesh that so often seeks to take us away from God and love for our neighbor. So ask yourself, are you serving? Are you engaged in people's lives? Are you lone rangering it right now? Is, are you, are you, a, you know, a solo brand of Christianity? Are you sowing to individualism at the expense of community with God and your brother and sister in Jesus? If you are, let us help you figure out what it looks like to, to overcome that. And if you are truly pressed into these rhythms, let us help you figure out how to disciple another into them. Remember, don't just be content with the fact that God's helped you figure this element of your life out. Now ask yourself, are you fleshing that story out with another person? Are you sharing at a table with them? Like, listen, this was really hard for me, but here's how God worked in my life and helped me overcome it. Be that exhortation to a person who is without it. Be able to be walked with and be content and desire to walk with others. So, you know, here's here's how I leave this with a word of encouragement. I talk to a lot of you, a lot, and, and this is seven years now. And I say this, and I mean it again. I'm encouraged, this is not a perfect church, it's never been, we never will be, but we're a church that has much to give thanks for. Because there is a regular palette of the evidences of sowing to the Spirit here. Uh, I hear it in, in, in very small ways, like, I've never felt so welcomed at a place, or uh, I had a really issue and it was just nice to be loved through it and not, not judged. Um, I actually found Jesus here, or you baptized me in an incredibly cold Atlantic Ocean sometime over the fall. You know, these are some of our stories. They're present in here. Or new and meaningful relationships that that happen because God has been good to do things under this metaphorical roof. And so what we're experiencing here is a church trying to walk in the Spirit. And that's really all we can do. We are responsible for faithfulness to this. We cannot produce the fruit. That's the pressure that God God mandates is his and I'd like to leave it in his hands but our faithfulness is one that we must wrestle with regularly what we experience as far as sowing we've got to ask ourselves are we faithful and we have to let God be fruitful that's awesome and that's why I believe there is still great future for us individually corporately as a body and I want to give thanks for that and I want us to I want to ask you to pray for this for increased favor in this area to, to be loved, to love each other, and to love our city. To experience the truths of Jesus in the same way. And I'll leave you with this last thing. Remember that when you pray this, uh, just know that part of the way God answers this prayer is you. Uh, you, can't ask to be, you can't ask for God to overcome things in your life. I mean, you, you can, and I guess I, don't want, I want to be clear here. There are times when God, I do, think, I do think, he can just break through a wall for us. But I also think once he breaks through the wall, you're still on the other side of the wall. So don't get to this place in life where you remove yourself from the way God is working. Make sure that you're letting God work through you in, in very meaningful ways. Ask him to show you what you're sowing into today. And, and really ask yourself if he does show you this today or in these days or weeks or months that follow, are you going to let him lead you? Are you going to let him be the Lord at that point? When he says, so this way, not that way, there's where your action comes into play. There's where you got to say, I got I to cast seed this way. And I need help from you and people who love me to do that. So as we close this morning and move to communion, ask yourself, what is it you're reaping and sowing? And what are you going to do about it if God calls you to make a change in that area? And if we're being frank, none of us are perfect in Jesus. So there is guaranteed to be a change area for all of us. So let's, let's own that communally and thrive in Jesus corporately as a body. Pray with me.